The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I want to begin, as we address this, this particular question, as we're addressing today, I want to begin with quoting one of my favorite philosophers. And so let's put our thinking caps on. One of my favorite philosophers is Mr. Incredible. You remember the superhero from the movie? This is a guy who saved the day often. And yet at one point in that film, with great frustration, he laments. And I quote, he says, No matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. Sometimes I just want it to stay saved. You know, for a little bit, I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up the mess. Can't we keep it clean for 10 minutes? Well, why can't the world stay saved? Why must we be engaged? Why is there a conflict that is enduring? Well, as Joe Boot uh, excellently put it, this is a consequence of the fall. There are many reasons, but fundamentally the reality is this. The world is messy. And in fact, we live in sin. In fact, the scripture tells us in the second psalm that the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against God and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds from us. In other words, the assumptive language is there's an order, there's a direction, there's a law intended by God and his anointed, who we know is Christ, on how we are to live. And those in the public square, the kings and the rulers, are opposed to that, and that produces messiness. And so the real question is not why we live in sin, so much as it it is how we are to live in sin. In fact, as believers in the risen and ascended Savior, we should not simply seek to survive, but we should seek to thrive, even in sin. How do we do that? How do we do that, especially after an edifying conference like this? The fact of the matter is, we will return to our so-called ordinary lives on Monday. And we'll be back into reality. And you can sense the plight of our culture freshly as we awaken on Monday. Be real. What characterizes our times? Moral decay. Cultural collapse. Economic instability. Celebrity politics. Narcissism. And that's just the CNN anchorman at that point. Now, given our moral decay and cultural collapse, you may be tempted to be discouraged. Now, why would I say this? I say this because I, too, sometimes am tempted to be discouraged. Let's just survey a bit where I live and move and have my being in the U.S. judicial situation. Uh, We have courts that countenance the starvation of a woman, Terry Schiavo, but not of a dog. We have courts that permit humans to be aborted, but forbid the destruction of a spotted owl embryo. We have courts that forbid Christian campus groups from choosing their own leaders 
if the criteria is that they have to be Christians. Let's face it. Today, in our culture, especially with respect to the courts, the classrooms, and even, sadly, many churches, we tolerate evil. Not only do we tolerate it, on many fronts, we embrace evil. And then we codify it via the law. In a very real sense, we are, in fact, living in sin. We are, again, in a cultural milieu, which is the equivalent of living in Babylon. And yet, we are called to live a faithful life, even in a cultural moral abyss. So, how do you? How should you live in Babylon? How should you do so well? Well, if it's any comfort, we've been here previously. And so to answer the question for today, how to live in sin, how to live in Babylon well, let's look and see and consider how God himself told his people to live in Babylon. Think what it might have been like to be in a Jew in 597 B.C. In 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army came and plundered Jerusalem, the very center of their culture. These invaders took away their king, King Jehoiakim, as well as 10,000 inhabitants and carried them off. They carried them off from Jerusalem to Babylon. A 600 mile across the Arabian desert was their journey, and it took them about three months. And they arrived, and they entered Babylon. Babylon was the largest and most magnificent city in the entire world at that time. Babylon was a city surrounded by a system of double walls. These walls were so thick that they could conduct chariot races four abreast around the perimeter of the city. There were 365 guard towers around that city's walls as well, and there was a moat fed by the river Euphrates. This was Babylon. Babylon the great, Babylon the mighty, Babylon the impregnable. The captors were likely ushered through this city through a particular gate, the northern gate, the gate of Ishtar. Some of you have probably been to London and some of the spectacular museums there. Part of those museums have the gates of Nineveh, Those are amazing. They're huge. They're large. They're impregnable. The gate of Ishtar dwarfed them all. This was a hugely significant thing. And when that gate opened, they were led on a paved street, and it led to the king's palace, and right next to it, a temple. A temple not devoted to Jehovah, but one to the god of Marduk. You've got to understand that law expresses lordship. And so what was going on in that culture was that Marduk was the lord and the law, accordingly, was Babylonian. In the 6th century B.C., Babylon was the cultural and architectural wonder of the world. But it was not the place for a devout Jew. It was a foreign place. It was an idolatrous place. And in fact, was the place of their enemies, the very people who had plundered the core of their civilization, Jerusalem. Here they'd be ruled by no Davidic king. The Mosaic law would not be their constitution. 
All their familiar landmarks were gone. And you can imagine their thoughts. This is not my country. This isn't my king, my legislators. These aren't my lawmakers. This isn't our judiciary. These aren't our customs, our values, our morals. And I suspect that this feel of exile quickly became a fear in exile. I'm not where I want to be. This isn't my home. I suspect there might have been some complaints arising, right? The landscape is barren. The weather's too hot. The people are boorish. I can't understand their language. The schools are substandard. There's no decent place to worship. I missed watching Red Green the other night. The Maple Leafs lost again. Such was life in Babylon. So now what's the discouragement to this very real and pressing problem? What's the solution to discouragement and to the moral decay? What would you expect God to do? Would you expect him to communicate? Remember, he's communicating to a people forced to live in a very pagan society. What would you do? What would be your game plan? What God does is he takes the time to write them a letter. He writes them a letter. What would you write? Would you say, hey, embrace the curse. After all, you're fallen, you know. Grit your teeth and endure the exile. Would you tell them to inordinately focus on their own sin, their own motives, on their own hearts? Tell them, in essence, to look inward. Would you tell them to abandon Babylon's public square and simply do liturgical you know, renewal and, and conduct Genevan jigs? Would you tell them to fo- focus exclusively on the institutional local church? Would you tell them to uh, go and, and go to the country and build a chicken coop? Live simply, live separately, live deliberately. Huckleberry picking for Jesus, right? <laughs> now, those um, questions are not hypothetical. I've pulled them from Christians who've suggested them as solutions. But I'm here to tell you that that's not what God told his people to do when living in Babylon. He had something very different in mind. He gives them three lessons. He gives them a lesson in theology, a lesson in ethics, and a lesson in eschatology. In theology, he basically says, look up. In ethics, he says, look outward. And in eschatology, he says, look forward. And so I'm going to read... Uh, An extract from this particular thing, it comes to us from the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. These are the very words of God. He says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. Stop right there. The surviving elders. There's death involved here. This is not an easy time. He sent it to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people. Notice, this is a word not just to the professionals, not just to the clergy, but to everyone who names the name of God. And to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 4, thus says 
the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So three lessons he gives them from that particular admonition. A lesson in theology. Theology answers this question. It's a primary question. Whom shall we trust, worship, serve, and obey? Whom shall we trust, worship, serve, and obey? And the shorthand answer is, the Twitter answer, and I don't tweet, but the Twitter answer is, look upward. He comes to them in announcing his intentions for them in verse 4 as the Lord of hosts. The all capital letters there. I am Jehovah, the covenant law God of hosts. He announces to them that he alone is the sovereign one that commands the entire host of a heavenly army. He puts himself in front of them as the sovereign one, the transcendent one, the Lord. And then he quickly qualifies that by saying, I am the God of Israel. The personal one, the eminent one, the one who is with them, the one who is close to them. And so he announces these marching orders both in terms of his transcendence, that he is sovereign over all, and his eminence, that he is with them. He is their God, the God of Israel. You see, their cry is, this is where I don't want to be. But God replies to them, You are exactly where I, the Lord, want you to be. In fact, four times in this passage, verse 4, verse 7, and then twice in verse 14, you think there's a point here being driven home? Four times God says, I put you in exile. I moved you from Jerusalem to Babylon, where I have driven you. Four times he emphasizes it. Now, that's, make no mistake, Nebuchadnezzar is morally culpable for their captivity. We see that in verse 1. But even with respect to the sinful acts of Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately it's in the sovereignty of the God who is for them, who places them where they are. He's the one who places them where they are and has called them to live faithfully even in Babylon. And so the first point of reference when living in Babylon, when living in sin, ought to be upward, not inward. And this is not because God is somehow unrealistic about who they really are, nor is it because he's overlooking who they really are. In fact, earlier on in the book of Jeremiah, as to their character, he calls them stupid children. Chapter 4, boy, that's flattering, isn't it? You're stupid, okay. As to their intellect, he says, they are are those who um, have no understanding. Okay, you're stupid. You don't understand. What about actions? Actions speak louder than words, right, God? Chapter 9, he says, you are people who've forsaken my law. Oh, but what about our hearts, our motives? I mean, our motives, certainly, God, 
Well, chapter 17, your hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. And so the point here is we are to realistically assess our hearts and ourselves, but we are not to park there. Parking there leads to morbid introspectionism, and it is deadly both to your spiritual life and to the application of that life to the culture. There's something very fundamental in this lesson. You see, we are not the solution. God is the solution, and so we must look upward, not inward. God comes to them, a sinful people living in a sinful culture, as the transcendent and eminent one, and that's where we must look. And there's a clue here about how we are to live then. We exist east of Eden and have done so since the fall of man. And so we're not to be nostalgic in the sense of pining for if we could only live in some, you know, fill-in-the-blank past area thinking that it's somehow better. One of my good friends and mentors says that being nostalgic is like driving your car with both eyes in the rearview mirror. Not a very wise thing to do. And we tend to be people with an impulse toward utopianism, thinking that if we can just do this, usually in the past, everything will be better. And so from an American perspective, I tell the the evangelicals, look, don't try to live back in the Reagan 1980s, The charismatic culture of the Jesus movement of the 60s, Ozzie and Harriet's 1950s, fundamentalism's early 20th century, revivalism's 19th century, the antebellum South, Puritan New England, Cromwell's range, Knox's Scotland, the 16th century, medieval scholasticism's um, goodness, truth, and beauty, Byzantinism, the Cappadocian Fathers, the Adlime of the Apostles. Okay, have I stepped on every possible Christian toe? I hope so. We are not to look backwards in the sense of wishing to recreate that. And Solomon tells us this. Ecclesiastes 7 says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. No. You see, where God places you, he is working in you to fulfill his purposes for you. Where God places you, he is working in you to fulfill his purposes for you. This is the cry, for example, the psalmist in Psalm 57. He says, I cry out to God most high, the transcendent one, who fulfills his purpose for me, the eminent one, the one who's close. This is to be their hue and their cry. We are, as a matter of theology, to look upward, not inward. It is the Lord God in whom we worship, trust, serve, and obey. And then he gives them a lesson in ethics, which answers a simple question, how then shall we live? The Twitter response is, look outward. He says in verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. A couple of points here. I think he's telling him to discard a squatter mentality. Instead, we're to lay foundations. You're not camping. You're not on holiday or vacation. Babylon may not be your place, but it is God's place for you. So discard the squatter mentality. And related to this is discard world flight. Engage the culture as it's presented to you. He tells them very specifically, 
enter into their seasons. When he's talking about planting gardens and eating their produce and so forth. Eat what they eat. Become part of the local economy. I assure you, agriculture in Babylon was very different than it was in Israel. And he says, look what they're doing and adapt and enter into it. Acquire skills. The implication is skills in the area of art and media, the legal process, economics, business, and yes, even politics. You see, life is not simply or only, as Tim Keller aptly puts it, quote, theater for conversion narratives. Life is not simply theater for conversion narratives. Rather, we are to live in and interact with the culture, and we're to do so conscientiously and intentionally. Now, what are some modalities for doing that? Uh, Andy Crouch makes some interesting observations. He says, when we do these sorts of things, and all of these have a certain validity, but sometimes we tend to gravitate toward one or the other. One of the things we simply do is critique culture, right? The blogosphere is full of this. It's what uh, Joe was talking about. Let's just get here and whip, out, whip on the other boys, right? We'll critique them. Yeah. And then we kind of move back from that and go, that's not enough. They're not hearing me. I'm not shouting loud enough. So let's just condemn them. And that creates a dualism. It creates taste not, touch not. I'm not like those guys. You can put on your Pharisee hat. So you critique, and then it moves into condemnation. Now, the other side of the pendulum, though, is equally, I think, uh, erroneous, is we just copy them, right? An uncritical aping of what's going on in the culture. We look for a baptized version of success. You know, IBM's doing it, let's us do it. You know, so-and-so's doing it, let's us do it. We just copy it. We have no creative thought. We just go out there and just copy it. Even worse than this, though, we just become consumers. We just consume it. Just give me more stuff. Unthinking absorption and passivity of what's going on in culture. But the reality is, the real only way to actually impact culture is to create it. Stewarding all that we've been graciously given to honor Jesus, the creator and redeemer of all things, the one who makes what? All things new. Revelation 21. And the implication of this, if we're going to engage the culture in this way, is that we must live not only piously, but competently. It takes both. I get really um, tired of running in, and I travel six continents. You can have Antarctica. I'll give you that. I've, I've been to Winnipeg in, um, in February. Antarctica's got nothing over on that. It was really cold. But I get so tired when I, the guy you know, saunters up, and first thing, he whips out the business card, and he's got a big fish on it. That doesn't make you a Christian advocate, I assure you. Uh, 20th century Thomas, a guy named Gilson, put it this way. If one wants to practice science for God's sake, the first condition is to practice it for its own sake because that's the only way to learn it. We are told that faith built the medieval cathedrals. No doubt. But faith would not have built anything had there been no architects and craftsmen. Our first rule of action is that piety is never a substitute for technique. Piety is never a substitute for technique. And so you must not only be a Christian X, you must be a competent X. Whether that's a teacher or a plumber, an accountant, a mechanic, a builder, 
a doctor, an entrepreneur, a politician, an advocate, an artist, a mom, an engineer, an entrepreneur. All these areas belong to Christ because he is Lord. You see, Jesus doesn't want a place at the table. Jesus owns the table. And Jeremiah says, live like it. Put differently, Jesus not only saves us from something, he saves us for something. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Keep reading. For we are are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, good works, we are to be a model of good works. We are to be devoted to good works. We are to let our lights be shine before men so that they see our good works. Not in a meritorious way, of course. It's by grace. But there's an implication here. And these good works are not limited to um, inner spiritual renovation, nor are they limited to ecclesiastical stuff. It's all of life. We see this then in verse 6. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. The third point of how to live in Babylon is we must promote society's core building block, which is marriage. Marriage as between one man and one woman. He's telling them that they ought not to confuse priorities. When he tells them to build houses and to live in them, he's telling them that houses are for homes. He wants them to lay the foundation for the culture. And marriage is a cultivated good. And he says, go to it. Now, why? Why would he pick out this one thing, marriage? We know that marriage is inherently good. But I think he's also thinking about the notion that there are moral consequences for this creational ordinance. And I'm going to talk about some of those. Now, sometimes, you know, I'm an American and an Italian, so I think of weird things. I'm weird. Just to tell you that right now. So, you know, you think of um, Solomon being the, the wisest man in the Bible, right? Okay. I got thinking, well, then, who's like the stupidest guy in the Bible? I know the answer to this. The stupidest man in the Bible is the guy that's found in Judges 15, the 1,000th Philistine. Do you remember the story? You got Samson, right? And Samson's kind of like doing the incredible Hulk thing. He's got the jawbone of a donkey, and the Philistines go, hey, let's get that guy. Okay, attack. And they bring 1,000 guys. He takes that jawbone and starts whacking these guys. You know, 68, 69, 104, bam, bam, you know, 312, coack, coack, coack. Come on, bam, 369, the brother of 86. Boom, boom, he smashes that guy. 624, ka kaboom, kabang. 817, cam, smash, bash, 938, kadoosh, kaboosh, kaboosh, you know, 999, bam, bam, okay, he's getting tired now, let's go, let's go, let's go, he's getting tired, bam, 999, whack, then you got the thousands Philistine, right, 
What you got, Samson? Come on, bring it on. What you got? That guy's dumber than a box of rocks. Now, if I were doing an apologetics conference, I would say, you know, the facts don't speak for themselves, and we can go talk about that. But the point here is, here's an illustration of the strongest man who ever lived, who was taken down by a deviation from God's design for marriage. Taken out. All that strength, all that heroicism counted for nothing in the sense that he punted on that issue. Oh, yeah, the wisest man who ever lived, taken out by his deviation from God's design for marriage, Solomon. Oh, yeah, the man after God's own heart, David, horrendous consequences for deviating from God's design for marriage. So I suspect that when God tells Jeremiah to tell him about marriage, he's not only saying it's inherent good, but it produces moral restraint within the culture. It produces a reverberatory, consequential impact that can't be accomplished simply by being really smart or being really strong or having a passion for marriage. We've got to hold up as a standard marriage as between one man and one woman. We're also, I think, the second reason is that we need to depict the gospel incarnationally as living epistles. We are told that we are living epistles. And so one of the things we do if we uh, muck up and blur what marriage is in a culture, then we have this analogy that um, Paul paints in Ephesians 5 that's also blurred and problematic. And so it's much harder to talk about Christ you know, is the bridegroom and the church is the bride when we don't really have all those things. And that's why sexual practices are not simply a matter of ethics, but they're a matter of great theology. For example, the legalization of prostitution. What does prostitution tell us? It tells us that Christ and the church come together out of economic exchange. Okay? What does fornication tell us about Christ and the church? Oh, that just means that it's a non-committal relationship. What does an adultery situation communicate about Christ and the church? There's infidelity. You see how it works? What does same-sex behavior indicate? There's like two Christs or two brides. These things have consequences. And what he says is, look, you're in pagan Babylon. Start with the core. Society's fundamental building block because it projects ultimately, the spiritual reality of the gospel. He also tells them to employ intergenerational strategies. Have children, have your children get married, have their children get married. I come across this all the time. Young people, oh, the world's so bad, I wouldn't dare want to bring a child into this world. Right? You hear that. What does God tell them? Do not decrease. Have more. In Babylon, are you sure, God? Yes, I'm sure. What does having children uh, tell us? It tells us we have faith in the provision of God for the future. It is an act of faith of living for the future. And he tells them this is a very practical way of having children does this. And so he gives them that to do. And then ultimately he gives them two more ethical points. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
This is a difficult text for me personally. Pray for Babylon. I'm going to pray against Babylon, right? Call down the imprecatory psalms, you know. Smoke them, God, right? There's a proper way of characterizing those things. But he calls them to pray for them, which is exactly what, of course, Timothy is told to do by Paul. He says, Paul says, first of all, and the first there is a matter of, of priority more than it's a matter of sequence. It's a matter of priority. First of all, then, I urge that prayers, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for the kings who are in the high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So those kings that are plotting against God in Psalm 2, we're to pray for them. We're to pray for Babylon. And then finally, he says, seeks, seeking a Babylon's welfare. This is what Joe was getting at, that we're, we're to be engaged locally. You know, it's, uh, if you want to go, you know, go over to Uganda for a week and do some wells and all that sort of, that's fine. I mean, you're doing service. But the fact of the matter is, if you want cultural change, you've got to start where you are. And he's t- telling them to seek Babylon's welfare. And the Hebrew here of seeking means throwing oneself wholeheartedly into the effort. It's not just this checklist thing going, you know, I, I said I was pleasant to the bank teller the other day. I guess I'm seeking, you know, check. I did that this month. No, it's throwing oneself into that whole type of a deal. Now, the notion of welfare, what does that mean? It's the Hebrew word shalom. You probably heard that. We say that means peace or something like that. It really means wholeness, vibrancy, vitality. And what we're trying to do then is we seek welfare is we're trying to promote a healthy and harmonious society. Not a little pietistic, you know, I have Jesus in my heart. Doo, doo, doo. Well, that's good, but not sufficient. It's the society of which he's concerned about. And it's not just the uh, Hebrew society. It's the Babylonian society. The context makes plain. And therefore, we are to be communitarian in focus, not individualistic. Christians living in Babylon are not to be an isolated community. We're not to cultivate a silo mentality. The believing community is not to be a bomb shelter. It is to be an ammo depot, equipping the believing community to permeate this culture, to truly be light and salt, and to live in all areas of life, taking uh, every captive thought to Christ. Because you see, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all of them, not just spiritual treasures. And as the context makes plain, this is a life beyond the local church, beyond the faith community, and beyond merely spiritual matters. You see, unlike our brothers in China or in the South Sudan, we have the ability and the freedom, though shrinking it is, to serve the greater good. And that's how we're to live in Babylon. You see, the consistent and prayerful, pious Christian must not allow the implications of Christ's lordship and thus the gospel itself to be truncated, to be shrunk, to be reduced, merely to the notion of saving souls. Uh, Don Carson is helpful when he says this, It is possible to so focus on the rescue and regeneration of individuals that we fail to see the temporally good things we can do to improve and transform some social structures. 
One does not abolish slavery by doing nothing more than helping individual slaves. Christian educational and academic structures may help countless thousands develop a countercultural way of looking at all of reality under the lordship of Christ. Sometimes the disease can be knocked out. Sometimes sex traffic can be considerably reduced. Sometimes slavery can be abolished in a region. Sometimes engagement in the arts can produce wonderful work that inspires a new generation. Most importantly, doing good to the city, and he's alluding here to Jeremiah 29, I think, doing good to the city, doing good to all people is part of our responsibility as God's redeemed people in this time of tension between the already and the not yet. I think this is one reason Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 2, For this is the will of God. Kind of hard to misinterpret that. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter's a general epistle. It's not written to a local church. The context, then, is to have the believing community interact in the local community with its institutions where unbelievers see it. Local community with institutions where unbelievers see it. The evidence uh, emphasis here is on living as freemen in every human capacity, not just, quote, doing church, quote. We're to be like Daniel. Daniel was taken into exile, into Babylon, before this grand exile. There's a descriptor there in in Daniel 6 where it says this, Then the presidents and the satraps, again, officials in the public areas, okay, institutional uh, decision makers, the presidents and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Really, Daniel was engaged in what? Working within the kingdom of Babylon. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And so I would add as a footnote, as we do this kind of engagement, as we seek the welfare of the city, remember this. Stupid for Jesus is still stupid. Okay? There's got to be competence coupled with wisdom. Competence and wisdom, as well as our piety. So the principle would be this. Focus on building Babylon's good without bowing to Babylon's gods. Focus on building Babylon's good without bowing to Babylon's gods. And make no mistake, this sort of engagement, this sort of living, is a mark of spiritual maturity. And if you just ask people generically, do you want to grow in Christ? Do you want to be more mature? Every hand, you know, kind of out of compulsion goes up, right? But this sort of living is really a mark of that sort of desire. Without such engagement, we will be spiritually immature. Now, I'm Italian. I like to eat Italian, which means a couple things. The meals are long but good, right? Long but good meals. Same way with quotes. This is a long quote, but it's a good quote, right? John Frame puts it this way. He says, Christian maturity is tested by its willingness to go against the odds, to go against the intellectual and practical fashions in the service of the king. It is easy enough to be a Christian 
when that merely requires us to be nice people. We've reduced sometimes the, the demands of the gospel. Let's be nice. Now, we should not be quarrelsome, pugnacious, unkind, unruly. But if that's all we think about as being, I've fulfilled what it means to walk with Christ, we've missed it. But he says this, But love for Jesus, which is motivated by his great sacrifice, requires far more. It calls upon us to renounce what the scripture calls the wisdom of the world, the fashionable ideas and practices of our society, and to count them as rubbish for the sake of Christ. We honor those like Noah, who built an ark, though the world scoffed. Like Abraham, who set aside the evidence of his senses and the laughter of his own life to believe that God would miraculously provide a son. We honor those like Moses, who stood up to Pharaoh and brought him the word of God. We honor those like Daniel, who faced lions rather than worship an earthly king. And we honor those like Peter and John, who told officials we must obey God rather than man. The conflict, the engagement, including with the institutions and leaders, is ongoing. And that is a sign of being spiritually mature. Well, finally, he gives them a lesson in, in eschatology. And I'm not talking about squiggly lines and, you know, raptures and Jesus and all. No. Basically this. In what shall we hope? So he tells us, as a matter of theology, look upward. As a matter of ethics, look outward. And then he tells us, look forward. In what shall we hope? You see, the exile that we have, our time in Babylon, is ultimately temporary. You see, the one that directed our exile will, in fact, direct our return. Now, that may be at the end of our lives. But the fact is, we will return where we are supposed to be. And so we are to engage our entire lives until God tells us otherwise. The good news is that the character of the God we worship promises us a future that is sure, that is good, and that is redemptive. And we must look forward to that particular time. You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> Oftentimes in the springtime, if you have um, friends that have sons and daughters, you have sons and daughters, what happens in the springtime around May is it's graduation time, right? And if you're in a Christian believing community, oftentimes cards are sent to commemorate that and offer congratulations. Oftentimes those cards are purchased at the semi-Christian bookstore and, um, you know, you, you kind of... You kind of walk past the Jesus junk and, and you get... And every card has the, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not evil. To give you a future and the hope. Now, I'm not mocking scripture. But you know where that verse comes from? From the letter God wrote to the people captured in Babylon. The notion of a promise of a future that is good, that is not evil, occurs in the midst of the Babylonian capa- uh, captivity. That's important to recognize that we don't just hope for the future when we're on the beach someplace enjoying life. It's while we're in the midst of this stuff that God says, don't worry, I've got your future covered. And that's in Babylon. And what's interesting about this is that God emphasizes his sovereignty in providing that particular future promise. You see, the security of our future is safeguarded by the sovereignty of the Savior. We can take it to the bank. And also what's interesting here is that particular God, his very character, Jeremiah tells us earlier on in the book, is one who delights in public justice. 
I don't use the term social justice. I think it's a code word for Marxism. And it's been, it, I mean, it really is. So I say public justice. And here's, here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. So there's you've got Solomon and you've got Samson. Nor let the rich man boast in his riches. Bill Gates, I suppose. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Now, what is it about knowing God that he wants us to understand and to boast in? Well, that first of all, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, steadfast love and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. And so while we're waiting to the uh, safeguarded surety of that future time, we are to walk in a way that brings delight to God. And that includes our engagement in seeking the welfare of the city, even in Babylon. And to ignore this component is to compromise the faith. That's strong language. But I think it's true. It's to compromise the faith by relegating it to irrelevance. Peter Jones, originally from Liverpool, now in Southern California, New Testament scholar, puts it this way. A compromised church finds itself parked in a back alley of cultural irrelevance. Meanwhile, other Christian groups have finally risen up to defend the family or fight for traditional values and stand as unconscious accusers of the church, which is sometimes equated the gospel with Jesus died for our sins. You see, that's not the gospel. We, maybe that's a controversial question we can talk about. The Christian gospel has been truncated and diluted in two ways. It has become either a take-it-or-leave-it Christian version of contemporary ideology, or it remains a mere program for personal salvation, a high-speed gospel train to heaven. As society implodes into lawlessness in the name of choice and freedom, Christian believers may no longer read the gospel through the insights of modern culture, nor may they maybe dispense it as a gospel pill for aching souls. We must understand the scope and intentions of the gospel, not through the buzzwords of diversity and choice, nor as a quick one-way ticket out of here, but as the New Testament authors did, through a fully worked out doctrine, biblical doctrine of creation. Herman Bovink puts it this way succinctly. He says, grace restores and um, perfects nature. Okay? And part of that is what we're talking about living in Babylon today. Accordingly, we must recognize the gospel and its implications and if you look throughout Scripture, I don't have the, the time now to go through and survey, but what you'll find is, interestingly enough, a correlation between this sort of engagement, what I'll call legal reformation, and spiritual reformation. These things are correlates. It's not one or the other. A hundred years ago, a guy named Machen put it this way. He said, As a matter of fact, God usually exerts his redemptive power in connection with certain prior conditions of the human mind. And it should be ours to create, so far as we can, with the help of God, those favorable conditions for the reception of the gospel. What are they? False ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer, 
and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there if, if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. Sounds like a recent book, right? The God Delusion. Machen's 100% right. So we see over and over again, whether it's the Pentateuch, whether it's um, the history, the wisdom literature, the prophets, major and minor. It, one example. The last Old Testament prophet, it's not Malachi, right? It's John the Baptizer. Right? He comes and prepares the way of God's anointed. And interestingly enough, the last Old Testament prophet also produces a particular ethical admonition to someone in the public square, right? He talks about God's design for marriage, and he loses his head over it. Interesting. He would have, he would have preached more if he just leave the issue of, you know, marital fidelity out of the picture. You could, have, you could have saved more souls, John. No, they go together. <clears throat> we need to understand and get that right. <clears throat> God blesses legal reformation with spiritual reformation, not in a causal way, but there's a correlate here on how we're built as humans. And so we must recapture the call and mission of promoting righteousness, standing for and promoting truth. Now, why doesn't that happen? Now, we could talk, you know, sociology, and we could talk uh, hammer theology, the doctrine of sin. We could talk all this stuff. But I'm just going to be a simple guy. I think Isaiah can help us here. And this would be an admonition. Isaiah 59. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off, for truth has stumbled in the public squares. You see the problem? Truth is something that is supposed to be evident. It's supposed to be noticeable. It's supposed to be grossly apparent. Where? In the public squares. And instead, it's stumbling. It's teetering. It's tottering. It's unsteady. And because of that, uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. What displeases God? Stumbled truth displeases God. But Isaiah goes on and says, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Not only is God displeased, but he's, I say this reverently, flummoxed, if, that, if, if God can be flummoxed. But you understand, he's wondering, going, can't you see truth is stumbling? Truth is stumbling in the public squares. It's teetering. It's tottering. Where are you? Where's the intercessor to steady stumbled truth? If you continue in the context, you'll see that ultimately, in principle, the steadier of stumbled truth is Jesus, the Messiah. But then, guess what? We're commanded to do what he's uh, called us to do, which is steady stumbled truth. 
And so we need to understand exactly as Joe said. Let's start here. Not morbidly introspective, but saying, what am I called to do in my vocation and calling that ultimately steady stumbled truth that produces righteousness, a precondition for the gospel to be received in the culture by steadying stumbled truth. That's how we live in uh, sin well. Now, change is what we are called to do. How we respond to God's word matters. But change is not always a product of confessing sin or even of repenting. Sometimes change is just a byproduct of of knowledge, of being equipped, of being envisioned, of walking in and increasing our faith, drenched in the Holy Spirit. And so we should ask the Holy Spirit, not just today, but in subsequent days, to apply this teaching to each and our every particular circumstance. What giftings has the Creator and Redeemer given to you? Where ought you to be stewarding these precious gifts in the world, in the public squares, for His kingdom? In what areas do you need the Lord to increase your faith? Where are you pious but not competent? Or where are you competent and not pious, relying on your own strength? Lawyers are great at this. Self-reliance, which is pride. What obstacle prevents you from stewarding these gifts? Is it the fear of man? Proverbs says a fear of man brings a snare. Is it indifference? You just don't really give a rip about the people in the community. Is it sloth, ignorance, callousness, self-introspection? You see, living in Babylon, though, we ought not to focus on ourselves. Instead, we need to ask the question, whom do we trust, serve, worship, and obey? Look upward. How then shall we live? Look outward. And in what shall we hope? Look forward. Now, I'm going to close with one of those um, awkward questions. You know, if you're in a Christian, you know, been, been Christianized, you know, there's awkward questions, right? Like, hey, brother, could I pray for you? That usually happens to me when I'm like, Going to the bathroom, sorry, you know, you know, trying, to in, you know, trying to go through security in an airport or something. I got it. But, of course, what do you say? Oh, sure. Thank you. for, Thank you for, you know. All right. Here we are. Amen. Say amen. Say amen. Really. Okay. Right? Awkward question. Here's an awkward question. Everyone will have to, you know, don't raise your hands because everyone will have to raise their hands because it's awkward. And lawyers are good at asking awkward questions. Who in this room wants to win the world for Christ? Because, see, that's really the tapestry, the atmosphere in which we're talking about this cultural engagement. It's not about our glory or something like that. Who wants to win the world for Christ? We must keep that overarching redemptive goal in mind. And having said that, though, here's the reality. Those who want to win the world for Christ must have the courage to come into conflict with it. Those who want to win the world for Christ must have the courage to come into conflict with it. Now, those aren't my words, by the way. Those are the words of a clergyman, a guy named Titus Bransma, martyred in Dachau in 1942. Now, how do we get that courage? Do we just gin it up and drink a bunch of Red Bull and say, okay, now I'm courageous? No, courage is the flower of conviction. You've got to get this in your bones. 
to the very marrow of your being. And when you have that conviction, the Holy Spirit comes and gives you the courage to do these kinds of things. You see, the world is not a playground for frolicking. It is a battlefield for fighting. But here's the promise of the gospel starting in Genesis 3.15. That sort of conflict, not being pugnacious and ugly, but that sort of conflict is a conflict that ultimately serves redemption. And when we refuse to engage in that sort of engagement, in that sort of conflict, we are withholding redemption from a lost and dying culture. We are not living well in sin. And so to win the lost, to live as optimistic Christians in Babylon, we must look upward, look outward, and look forward. And to do so, we will live well in sin. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.